If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. Hello and welcome to the No Need for Prince Charming podcast. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by City Fertility. With a diverse range of sperm donors to choose from and no waiting time, City Fertility are ready to help you fulfill your dreams of growing your family, just like they helped me grow mine. Visit City Fertility today to learn more. So I have a very special guest on the podcast today. I have my wonderful fertility specialist, Dr. David Wilkinson. Um, he is the reason that I have my beautiful daughter, Alexandra, and I thought I would take him, have a few questions for him, help answer whatever you are going through and help you be more prepared for the journey that may be ahead of you. So welcome, David. Oh, look, thanks so much for the invitation, Alicia. It's, um, yeah, it's lovely to see you again, too. You know, the last three years have been difficult for all of us and, yeah, lovely to see, see everything going so well for you. So thanks for the invitation. Thanks for helping me have my daughter. <laughs> I thought we'd just start with maybe getting a little bit of background on yourself, David, and what led you to go into fertility medicine and, and do the miracles that you do every day. Um, I've got quite a long-winded and complicated story how I got there. I'll try and sort of make it a bit brief. But actually, my interestingly, my parents had fertility issues. So I think that was something, it was a long time before I came along, many, many years. And I think that might have been something back in my mind, but I actually did. I did biochemistry and genetics initially at Oxford, and I went on and did a PhD in human um, immunology and genetics, and then actually do medicine as I'm sure a student. Then got into Ops and Gynae, and um, going through that, I really liked the fertility side because it had that nice combination of, um, you know, developments in the area of science and sort of, you know, a very personal aspect to it. So, you know, it was an interesting journey and, you know, a lot of the stuff I'd done prior in the immunology and genetics areas actually, you know, fitted in quite nicely with this, you know, developing area of um, IVF and reproductive technology. I'm sure you've seen lots of different advances in technology come in over the time. What do you think was the most exciting thing for you that came around? I think, um, look, obviously, I think IVF has progressed massively, um, speaking specifically IVF rather than other fertility treatments. I think within the IVF sphere, I think just the, um, the the way it's got a, a whole lot safer because of just uh, changes in the drugs available, the process has become a lot more user-friendly fr- in terms of side effects with these new class of drugs we use mainly now. And even very simple things, like simple technological things, like uh, changes in, in freezing technology, 
has just completely changed everything. Like now we can freeze eggs reliably. We can freeze um, embryos more successfully. And that's really changed everything. I, I think we're going to be talking later about frozen embryo transfers. And that's made the frozen embryo transfer, which is often a safer way of going, you know, so successful these days. So a simple technological change in freezing technology called vitrification has just opened so many different doors for um, for both egg freezing and improvements in IVF. So, you know, it sounds pretty simple, but it's made a big difference. <laughs> yeah, the little things, isn't it? So, so if we crack into some questions, I went out to the audience and asked what they wanted to know from uh, talking to a fertility specialist, which is very exciting for people who maybe even haven't had their first appointment. If someone is just considering whether this journey is the right one for them, what advice would you give them? I think um, uh, I was thinking about this question earlier. It is such a difficult one to answer because there is so much, very, you know, individual variation. I think it's hard to give a really generic answer to that one. I think the first question is, you know, uh, obviously looking at the practicalities of it. I mean, um, a baby, particularly a first baby, is, is, a, is a big deal. And if you're on your own and coming from the hospital on your own with that, you know, you have to think about all those practical implications. You know, have you got supports set up to help you know it's going to be there's going to be great times but also there's going to be some challenging times so it's a question i think you've got to answer yourself i think one of the really key things though probably and i see this as a big issue you know, in all my patients is once you've made that decision that yes i want you know to go go alone is not to leave it too late mm. so i you know once you've made that decision it is a big one to take um, get as many supports in place as you can. But once you've made it, don't leave it too late because as time goes by with increasing age, the chance of it working um, gets lower. And I, I see this a lot. I see uh, a lot of women who've wrestled with this idea for a long time then eventually come to that decision. And by that stage, they might be 40 when obviously the chances start to go down quite a bit. So once you, make, you, know, once you decide that's the way to go, try and move forwards as soon as you can. Do you think it would be good advice to say if you're even kind of considering to have an appointment with a fertility specialist and understand your options and see if I you think, time? Yeah, I, I really think it is because um, what a lot of people still don't realise, I think, uh, in both sexes, to be honest, is that IVF or, or fertility treatment doesn't necessarily cure everything. And mm -hmm. so definitely worth having that discussion maybe get some basic things tested egg reserve for example and also just have that frank discussion about how Im age impacts results uh, and IVF doesn't necessarily solve that if you leave things too late so I think yeah it's a good idea. Brilliant and what do you think that they should consider when they're picking which fertility specialist they're going to go with what's important? I guess uh, again it's a difficult one because in a perfect world you, you, you want to go and see somebody that you can have a a, you know a good relationship with that you feel comfortable with the problem is you don't know that until you meet them so you know it's you're kind of halfway there so but obviously i think uh, you know you have to pay money obviously but uh, sometimes it might be a case of even seeing one or maybe more you know uh, fertility specialists before you start just to make sure it's somebody you feel you can speak to and you have faith in um word of mouth is often very good too so if you've known somebody who you trust has seen somebody and they've been happy um that's often a very good recommendation sometimes you know the reviews and things you have to be very careful that can be a real minefield because you know there is corruption in those areas of people sort of writing false reviews and all kinds of things so i think word of mouth with the key thing is um, just to make sure you feel comfortable with that person have faith in them when you meet them and if you don't you know maybe get a second opinion yeah 
I think location's important as well because <laughs> you end up coming yeah. in quite a lot for scans and things, don't you? So yeah, look, that is nearby or close to work if that works out well as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, somebody who fits. I think even even with that though, I wouldn't put that over making sure you feel comfortable with the, with that specialist because you know, for the sake of driving 15, 20 minutes extra. You know, if, if you don't feel comfortable and you're doing it purely for geographical, you know, <laughs> convenience, <laughs> probably not a great thing. Good advice. What do you think women should be asking their fertility specialist on that first sort of initial appointment that maybe they don't know they should be asking? I think they should be probably asking realistic, what are their realist, realistic chances of success? You know, and that depends on a lot of things, past history, age, you know, those things. And you, you can learn that, obviously, from that first meeting where, the doctor you see will go through a bit of a history. Um, and assuming we are looking purely at sort of uh, presumably anonymous donor sperm, the other thing it too is to get some idea of how many donors are available, you know, whether potential donors are the right racial background, those sorts of things, because um, that is that can be a real rate-limiting factor these days. It's very hard to find new sperm donors. And I know a lot of the clinics um, are struggling to find enough donors to you know, to meet the needs of their uh, their patients or clients. Yeah. So th- th- I'd ask a pretty direct question um, about do you have donors available? Is there a waiting list to see which donor you can be allocated? All those things because different clinics operate in different ways. Yeah. And given your base in Victoria, what would be the most common, I guess, treatment plans and paths for a woman with no fertility issues from that first appointment? So really, I think uh, if there's no past history, you know, regular periods, whatever, you know, ovulating, the first decision is going to come down to age because we know that natural fertility, you know, forget about IVF or whatever, just there's a very, very close correlation between um, female age and monthly fertility when, when trying naturally or with donor insemination or IVF. So that's one of the, going to be one of the, the key decisions. Like, it, to be honest, if you were 40, um, Generally, we'd recommend you went straight to IVF because the pregnancy rates, even with IVF, are reduced at 40, but they're much better than doing um, intrauterine insemination with donor sperm at that age where the pregnancy rates at 40 would be less than 5% per go. So that's going to be a real key determining factor. There are financial considerations too. Um, like Strictly speaking, with Medicare, in terms of getting any Medicare help, um, strictly speaking, you can't get any Medicare help uh, with, with whatever treatment you're having um, if there is no history or fertility issues. But from a practical point of view, that has a bearing because if you go straight into an IVF cycle, for example, with no um, help from Medicare, it is really expensive. I mean, IVF is expensive, but without any Medicare help, it's really expensive. So sometimes what happens, you know, I think most clinics would operate in this way that if Let's say you saw somebody who was, you know, under 35 or certainly under 38. Um, the first step probably would be to do donor insemination, which is intrauterine insemination with an anonymous donor sperm. And if that didn't work, to progress to IVF afterwards. And sometimes, depending on how many cycles you've done, um, then it would be quite, it would be classified as medical infertility, and that can make it cheaper to do IVF. And kind of those two rounds of the IUI would end up being less than the yes you're getting from medicare yeah it's a, the whole area is a really difficult one because there are not really strict guidelines around it you know obviously and each person is different if somebody's got a 
um, if somebody's got a history of endometriosis, for example, you know, even if they haven't been trying um, severe endometriosis, then obviously that can have an impact on how their treatment classification is made. Or, you know, uh, we also know if somebody is 40, natural fertility rates per month are low and in the realms of medical infertility. So, you know, an argument can be made that um, help can be given for IVF in that, in that situation. So it's a bit of an indiv- individual appraisal. Right. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? So when we talk about success rates, what are the actual success rates? Um, now, success rates, word of warning to everybody, um, and, you know, including listening to me, I'm an IVF you know, fertility specialist. So in terms of defining success rates, you have to look very carefully what you're actually defining. So are you defining if I start a cycle of IUI or IVF, what's my chance of getting a baby from that cycle? Or as often quoted in IVF, if I do an embryo transfer with a perfect looking, you know, embryo, what are my chances of pregnancy? Now, those, you know, those factors can not, can mislead you sometimes. So obviously, I I think, you know, if you could, you know, the the best answer would be, let's say I do an IUI cycle, what is the chance of getting a baby from that cycle? Or if I do an IVF cycle, what is the chance of getting a baby from the embryos I get from that cycle? And that I think that's probably what most people would want to know because classifying things on what is the chance for a baby from doing an embryo transfer can be very misleading because not every patient gets a perfect looking embryo and so they get taken out of the equation so you have to look at all those things so i think the the answer simply should be what's what's the chance of getting a baby from each of those cycles now with an ivf cycle you may get fresh and frozen embryos and so the cumulative pregnancy rate from those is obviously going to be a lot higher than doing a single you know uh, intrauterine insemination and we should really be talking about live births because um Unfortunately, a lot of uh, patients do get pregnant, either naturally or with assistance, and there is a miscarriage rate, and that's very age-dependent. So, you know, the miscarriage rate is the same as with IVF as it is naturally, and the general figure is around about 20%. Um, If you look at patients who are in their 40s, it's a lot higher, maybe more than 40 or 50%. So you have to factor that into account as well. So I think it's really good if you say, what is my chance of, you know, having a live baby? And as you know yourself, you know, um, that that doesn't all, always happen. So if I'm under 35, have no known fertility issues and do an IVF cycle, what would be the, the standard, I guess, success uh, well, rate for a live birth that we would be thinking if you so going back to first of all having now contradicted myself by talking about what the pregnancy rate per embryo is so if you put an ice frozen blastocyst back from a patient of that age you're looking at about a 50 percent pregnancy rate per embryo and in that group if the egg reserves good you know you may um well get a number of embryos from that cycle so you know it would be certainly over you know if you included all those things over a 50 percent pregnancy rate um if you ask the question if i went ahead and did a fresh embryo transfer the quoted figures usually been about 30% from that cycle. Uh, but if you include extra embryos, about 50%. If you did the same thing with IUI using donor sperm at 35, it would be a lot less than that. Uh, we know that for, you know, say a young heterosexual couple with no fertility problems, the monthly pregnancy rate is only 20% per month. It's a lot less than we all realise. It's a miracle so, um, anyone has babies sometimes, isn't it? I know. No, you spend a lot of, spend half your life avoiding it. You know, then I see... 
you know, having done that, it can be about one in eight couples, you know, heterosexual couples will have difficulties conceiving. And um, so it's going to be less than 20% per go with IUI if somebody's 35. You're probably looking at between 10 and 20%. So obviously, as they get older, the success rate gets lower, and that's mainly just due to natural fertility diminishing as you get yeah. older. Two big factors, decreasing egg numbers, but more importantly, in decreasing egg quality, which is, you know, a, a higher proportion of the eggs have chromosomal abnormalities. You know, for example, you know, 35, probably, uh, that's when it really starts to come down, 35 onwards. At 35, probably seven or eight, somewhere between seven and eight, eggs are normal chromosomally normal if you do this if you do the same thing at 40 even though the eggs look the same only three out of ten are right if you do the same thing at 45 it might only be you know one egg in 20 or 30 is actually normal even though they're the same so that's the big factor yeah so i think there are a lot of ivf statistics around that i think people starting in this journey can get quite fixated in do you know if there are any specific IVF statistics available for solo mums, so rather than couples that have fertility issues, or are all the ones quoted more from fertility issues? Most are from fertility issues, but we um, we do. So, like, you know, uh, where I work, when, when we're looking through the IVF success rates or or donor insemination or, or well, obviously donor insemination is different, but let's say IVF, we do, I often get them to, classify that or get the uh, the scientists to stratify that in terms of the use of donor sperm um, which can include some heterosexual couples where the male has no sperm himself yep. but but that separates a lot of female infertility mm -hmm. and generally we expect a higher pregnancy rate because we're not expecting there to be a fertility issue when you match for age and everything so generally we expect higher pregnancy rates per go in that group because we're we don't anticipate there to be a female um factor that includes often i see a lot of uh, sort of same-sex couples too um mm -hmm. but you know you have surprises because sometimes you just don't know you know we, we know that about one in eight heterosexual couples um have issues um and so sometimes even if you're a single uh, woman there could be some issue that we just don't know about. There could be a history of endometriosis, which hasn't been diagnosed. So overall, overall, we expect a higher pregnancy rate, but occasionally you do get a surprise where you, you see a woman and you think it's going to work first go, and then, uh, you know, uh, many cycles later, it hasn't worked. So that can be unveiling a, you know, previously unknown fertility factor. Mm. And that's really, really tough for them because they've never oh, tried before to know. Yeah. Really Really tough all around because you're going with great expectations and then, you know, very upsetting when six months down the track it hasn't worked. And just to clarify, when we're looking at the IVF success rates, is the age based on the mother's age at the time of conception or transfer or when the eggs were collected? Um, the age of her when the eggs were collected, that's, you know, so it really is all about egg age. And so, in fact, I've seen a lady today who's coming back to use her embryo. She's now 43. Um, embryos frozen from a couple of years ago have got a much higher chance of working than if we did a new IVF cycle now and got fresh embryos. I'm, I'm always surprised by how many people I interview in this podcast that suddenly learned that they have really bad endometriosis when they start down this journey. Yes. Do you see that as quite common? And what kind of implications does that have for people's success? Good question. There's a lot of controversy in this area. So generally, 
um, you know, the classic diagnosis of, of endometriosis is, you know, painful periods, sometimes painful sex, um, and difficulties getting pregnant. It doesn't always follow that way. I've seen a few patients over the years where they've come to see me with the only issue has been difficulties um, getting pregnant, no pa- no period pain, no pain with sex, and I've, I've had really serious endometriosis. So the big question is, yeah, we do know that around about 10%, 5 to 10% of women have endometriosis. There's a lot we don't understand about it, though. So there's a definite association between having endometriosis and having decreased fertility. But it isn't really a quantitative thing. So it's not just based on how severe it is. And we still, you know, don't know the exact mechanism. You know, it can affect egg quality. It can affect the environment inside the uterus. In severe cases, it can affect structural things like the fallopian tubes and things like that. So sometimes it could be undiagnosed. The big unknown at the moment is uh, what we should do about that. You know, do we, if somebody's got severe endometriosis, are they better off having, um, you know, quite major surgery sometimes to try and clear that away? Or do you go, say, straight to IVF treatment? I think the take-home message at the moment is say there's so many conflicting studies and, and oh, different groups of people making their own sort of point. My view on it these days is because I see so many patients who've had lots and lots of surgery which have got rid of the endometriosis, but you lose often lose eggs each time you have that done. I think the thing that summary would be, yes, endometriosis can reduce fertility. IVF seems to be the best option for it. Mm-hmm. And if it was me, I would probably progress directly to that rather than having major invasive surgery if pain wasn't the main thing. Um, and it's possible um, that the average, but not proven, possible maybe that the average pregnancy rates with endometriosis might be a little lower than for women without it, but it's still pretty good. And the other one that's quite common that that pops up is PCOS. So what implications does that one have? So with PCOS, something I I see uh, all the time, and a really careful distinction you need to make is between, uh, often I see um, women who've been incorrectly diagnosed as having PCOS. So PCOS means polycystic ovarian syndrome. So that means that you've usually got polycystic looking ovaries, irregular or absent cycles, and sometimes it can mean you can have some more dominant male hormone effects like increased facial hair growth, um, skin problems, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the full, that's, that's what PCOS is. Polycystic ovaries just means that you've got a characteristic, a characteristic appearance of the ovaries, and that, that in itself usually doesn't cause any fertility issues. If you have full-blown PCOS, then it usually does because it usually means that you're not ovulating. So for most women with PCOS, PCOS, they don't need to um, have IVF. Obviously, if they're using donor sperm, it's a different thing. Um, It's a question of getting them to ovulate. That's all often all they need. So if you if you were if you had PCOS but were needing donor sperm too, it's possible you wouldn't need to do IVF. We might just be able to induce ovulation with usually letrozole these days um, and then do insemination with the sperm. Ah, okay. Now, obviously, there's a lot of um, fine-tuning of that, a lot of caveats with that. It depends because um, not, all donors, not all sperm donors we have, the sperm, is the sperm sufficiently good quality that we can do that, that we have to do IVF sometimes. But if you have the right donor with a good sperm count, you may not have to do IVF. You, you might it might just be a question of inducing ovulation 
than doing intrauterine insemination. Mm. So PCOS does not mean that you have to do IVF. There are maybe no. options. In fact, you know, donor sperm aside, like I see a lot of heterosexual uh, couples where the female partner has PCOS and I'd never go directly into IVF. We'd normally just try and use simple things like letrozole first and only if that failed would you then go on to something like IVF. Mm, good to know because I think there's a lot of a lot of myths and things out there around PCOS. So I think that There is. Diagnosed with the other thing to mention with PCOS too, the classic classically, most women with PCOS will have a, an increased BMI, but not always. You know, they can sometimes be on the other end of the spectrum too and have a have a you know low BMI. In but terms I, of BMI, is there a preferred range, or what's the implications if you are higher or lower for fertility? I think, I think if you spoke to most patients, they'd say, look, in a perfect world, to be in the normal BMI range is good. You know, if it's too high. That, that does reduce sometimes success rates with things like IVF. Um, it can obviously have implications too when you do get pregnant about, you know, increased risks of gestational diabetes and that sort of thing. Um, whereas if your BMI is really low, you can sometimes stop, you know, ovulating. So you, you sometimes see either professional athletes or sometimes we've had anorexia where their, their BMI is very low, they will actually stop ovulating. So the body protects itself against getting pregnant because, you know, there's not enough um, resources to support a pregnancy, yeah. So if we talk about if we are doing IVF, in your opinion, what is preferred, a fresh or a frozen transfer and why? Um, big change. Going back to what I mentioned right at the very beginning in terms of um, changing technology. So if you'd asked me this question, let's say, 10 years ago, the general thought was fresh is best, and if you've got some frozen, that's good, that's good, but they're not quite as good as the fresh ones different totally different now we're actually getting so you know we review the pregnancy rates all the time we, we've for the last few years have got consistently higher pregnancy rates with frozen than fresh okay and that's probably there's a few reasons for that one is the, the improved freezing technique but the other is if you th think about it you know in a stimulated IVF cycle particularly there's a lot of eggs a lot of follicles the hormone profile is very different from a natural cycle and so the theory is that maybe you might put a nice fresh embryo back, but the uterine environment might not be as hospitable mm. to it. Whereas with a frozen cycle, generally, you know, everything's recovered. You put in the frozen embryo back. If the, if the woman is ovulating, just into an ovulatory cycle, so everything's back to normal. The other thing, too, is generally safer, too. So if we, um, if we do a fresh embryo transfer in a woman where we've had a lot of eggs collected, there is a risk of getting a condition called ovarian hyperstimulation in pregnancy, which can you know, drag on and you know, be a very nasty start to the pregnancy with bad symptoms for quite a few weeks. So I think probably if you ask me this question in another 10 years, um, I think we'll be doing nearly all frozen embryo transfers. And would it just be a month after the stem cycle? Yeah, so often often the month after the IVF stem cycle, um, if you ovulate normally, you will almost certainly ovulate that next month. Often ovulate a bit later, just while you're recovering. But... Mm -hmm. You know, it, we would normally go straight into the next month, you know, um, and. Yeah. So just a, a month later, that's really, yeah, really interesting. I think both of the ones, well, all three that I've had in my, my life have been fresh transfers. And yeah, I mean, the first one was what, 12 years ago now. So things have yeah. changed quite considerably in that time. 
And there's been a few, look, I won't get into too much, but there have been a few little things which have helped us with that. One is that now often we will do a blood test on the day of the trigger injection in a stimulated cycle. And if the progesterone level is high on that day, that's another guy that, you know, it's not a precise thing, but if it's over a certain level, often we will say we won't do a fresh transfer because that predicts that the fresh one might have a lower chance than ideal. Mm. So that's, that's been a discovery really the last few years. So it's, it's an evolving area. Yeah, it's great to just have all those little insights because I think everyone listening wants to have the best chances possible. So that's something that they can consider. The really difficult, Alicia, is uh, the reason it's difficult. Obviously, there's increased cost in doing another, you know another cycle. So that's one down thing. Of um, there's a patience thing as well that you know when you've been waiting for so long to do it, the thought of waiting another month could sometimes be really confronting. Yeah. And the other thing which makes it really hard is sometimes you don't get an embryo which you can freeze. Mm, true. That's really hard and, and if you plan not to do a fresh transfer we'll let the embryos grow on for you know day six day seven and give them every chance to reach an embryo we can freeze but sometimes we don't get one then it's obviously heartbreaking yeah but when that happens then you look back and think well maybe we should have you know done a fresh embryo transfer on day five even though the embryo didn't look so good it would have had some chance rather than zero so it's a really difficult one to balance mm. And so when we've got those, should we trust ERA results or are they a waste of time? <laughs> well, how should I answer that? I don't want to get any libel against me. Look, all I say is I don't use it. So okay. the ERA... Um, Maybe we should explain it, what it is for... You know. Okay. It's, it, it's, it's a, a test to look at what's called endometrial receptivity. So the theory is it's something we wouldn't do for every patient anyway. So if you sometimes, unfortunately, see patients who've had a few embryo transfers and it hasn't worked, there's been no implantation. Now, there's obviously a whole lot of reasons for that. The commonest by far is that the embryos we've been putting back are not normal chromosomally. That, that accounts for nearly all of IVF success and failure, there are, but there are some rare things. So one theory that's been put out is that maybe for some women, the time we put the embryo back might be wrong that for whatever reason there's a mismatch between the stage of the embryo and the stage of the endometrium mm -hmm. and the thing that's probably most important in a fresh cycle where with the high hormone levels we think the endometrium might mature a bit more quickly and so the embryo uh, the embryo can be a bit behind the stage of the endometrium this is all theoretical yeah so one idea is, do we, is there any way we can test this? Is there any way we can try and work out when the best time to put an embryo back? And one thing that the Spanish group had developed is, is testing a whole lot of gene expression um, from the uterus, looking at um, genes which are expressed in the uterus and trying to see whether that points to the right direction to put the embryo back. Um, I don't use it, unless I'll be upfront, um, for a couple of reasons. Look, if you believe that you're better off i think freezing the embryo and just putting it back in a natural cycle next yeah. the other is um if you and it's a very expensive test too and if you do that the result you get is really only good for one cycle so if you do the test and it says oh maybe you should put the embryo back one day later next month you're not 100 percent sure whether that's going to hold the next month so for me i i don't use it because i think it's probably not advanced enough yet but you you would find people who disagree with me and and it, it, future, it'll yeah. catch up <laughs> yeah and it is pretty expensive i'm not sure the exact cost is but it's over a thousand dollars yeah 
Do you believe that a fresh transfer has anything to increase the risk of a premature birth or is there anything you've read on that? Obviously you are the fertility specialist side rather yeah. than the OB side, so let's put that clarity out there. But there are a few, I think, specialists saying that there might be an increased risk of premature birth with a French transfer rather than frozen. Uh, I was Look, I was speaking to one of my obstetric colleagues about this this morning, actually. Now, it's a very difficult question to answer accurately. So, you know, the, 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 there is a belief out there, that, you know, an IVF pregnancy generally is a high-risk pregnancy. Now, mm-hmm. uh, if you look closely at all the evidence, that's not so clear-cut. So what you have to try and decipher is, is it the IVF or is it the reason that woman is doing IVF? So most of the time we're doing IVF, it's for couples who've had difficulties conceiving. Now, we know there's a big study in Western Australia a few years ago where they were looking at not this much as actually looking at birth defects and for patients who'd actually undergone IVF technology. And they thought there was a slightly increased, uh, very slightly increased risk of birth defects if you did IVF compared to naturally conceived. The interesting thing, though, is when they re-examined all that data, that increased risk didn't seem to be related to IVF. It seemed to be related to the patient group. Those patients who'd had a first baby with IVF but then conceived naturally, the risk seemed to be the same for them however they conceived. So, you know, it's a very long one. I've come back to this question. When you're trying to say, you know, is there an increase of prematurity um, from IVF, possibly not a big thing, but possibly a slightly increased chance. Mm-hmm. But that could well be related for the reasons we're doing IVF, you know, they can rather than the actual IVF technique itself. And so if you're looking at a single woman using donor sperm with no bad gynae or obstetric history, then I'm not even sure that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and most, And I think most obstetricians... You know, don't I think there's obviously a paranoia from us all. This is in such a difficult pregnancy to achieve, and quite a lot, quite a lot of the IVF patients we see have higher risks for other reasons. They may be older, you know, which we know does increase risk of things like stillbirth or what have you. So it's very difficult to to know whether it's the IVF which leads to that or the actual reasons for doing IVF. And it may be that for a single woman, if she's normal, you know, in a, in a normal age group using donor sperm, the risk may not be significantly different at all. So you do see that there are a few obstetricians or midwives that sort of insist on induction because you're an IVF and you're seen as high risk. If you're one of those groups that are a normal, well, good age for conceiving, have no known um, fertility <laughs> issues, do you think there's a case for that or is there's no reason they should need to be? Okay. I don't think, I mean, you certainly wouldn't be wanting to go, you know, more than 10 days over or anything like that. But I, th- I think I have to be careful I answer this because I don't want to give a blanket answer, you know, because each patient should be being looked at as an individual by their doctor. So what I would suggest you do is I would actually, you know, if that's your situation that you're being advised to be induced at 38 weeks, just discuss it, you know, with your with your doctor and ask for the reasons why and why they think that's a good thing and what evidence they have. Because there could be something in, you know, your history I don't know about, so I don't want to just dismiss it. But I think, you know, in a just to, to ask the question, but I don't think it needs to be a blanket, you know, thing to, for every patient just because they've done um, IVF to be induced at 30 weeks. And certainly, you know, uh, most of my patients who get pregnant and go and see private obstetricians, 
they're certainly not all induced at 38 weeks. Mm, so it's not the IVF that makes them high risk, it's the other factors. Probably, yes. It's hard to decipher all of that, yeah. Just interrupting this episode for a quick word from our sponsors. Not only have City Fertility sponsored this episode, they are also extending a very generous 20% off discount for all of my listeners. That's 20% off IUI, IVF, ICSI, as well as six months complimentary egg, sperm and embryo storage. If you're just starting out or about to undergo treatment to make your baby dreams come true, head to the show notes for my discount code and a link to their website for more information. Are you aware if there's any link between IVF and placenta previa? There is probably an increased incidence, probably. Um, there's probably about a twofold increase incidence. But again, looking at the data is, you know, conflicting studies. Um, there was a paper I saw published a few years ago, actually looking, looking at women who'd had one baby um, from IVF and one baby naturally, and there didn't seem to be any difference in the percent previous incident in those two groups. So again, raising that question, is it, is it the underlying cause of infertility that does that? But yeah, I, I was speaking, um, and this is just a you know, personal observation, speaking to one of my very experienced colleagues this morning, um, and his belief was he thinks, you know, from what he sees, he thinks there is a, an increase in incidence of placenta previa. Yeah, because I guess you, you're placing it so sp- specifically, aren't you, where if it's a yeah. natural consumption, I guess it can kind of go anywhere. <laughs> it is. In relation with that too, when we do an embryo transfer, even if you're doing it under ultrasound guidance, which we usually do these days, the embryo doesn't necessarily end up where we inject it because, you know, you can put it in the right place and then you can still get ectopic pregnancies because implantation, embryonic implantation doesn't occur for quite a few days after we do an embryo transfer. So we'd normally put an embryo back at day five and implantation doesn't occur till day nine. So, you know, embryos can misbehave in that time. Four um, days to jump around. <laughs> exactly. You know, because we, we do get ectopic pregnancies uh, sometimes, even though we know we put it into the right place to begin with, yeah. Mm. So if we're talking now more about what some women are doing now as more of an insurance policy, egg freezing. How effective do you think egg freezing is as an insurance policy? And very, very simple question with a very, <laughs> very complicated, you know, answer. Look, I see quite a lot of patients now coming through for egg freezing. And I think uh, you need to have a frank discussion about it, you know, with that person to see whether it really is the right thing for them. So in reality, I mean, what's made it, what's made it a um, something which is certainly worth considering is the improvements in the technology. So when we freeze eggs now with this vitrification technology, about 90% recover. recover. The egg is a very difficult egg to freeze. It's a, a, the biggest cell in the body. It's got a lot of water in it, so it makes it technically diff, a diff, difficult cell to freeze. And there's this new technology which made it available and it's quite successful. The thing with egg freezing, though, it's certainly better than doing nothing, but the best time of doing egg freezing is probably when you think you're never going to need it. So you're certainly better off doing it if you're under 35, preferably. Mm-hmm. Now, I know there's not everyone's situation the same, so you have to look at it. Because for two reasons, um, if you're going to use those eggs later on, um, the chance of getting a baby from those eggs depends upon the age you were when you froze them and how many eggs we get. So um, the younger you are, the more likely we're going to get a good egg number. And also, each of those eggs has got a higher chance of being chromosomally normal and lead to a pregnancy later on. So the younger you do it, the better. Mm -hmm. If... If you're 
look, to be honest, and I've got a patient coming through at the moment. We've had a discussion. She is nearly 40 and she's her only option is egg freezing. But if you're over 38, I would strongly, you know, think about really answering the question, should I be get, getting pregnant now? Should I be using donors from getting pregnant? Because the chance of getting a baby from those eggs frozen over 38 is not as high as we'd like. And you need a lot of them, you know, to actually get a, um, a chance for pregnancy later on. Like if you're, you know, if you're 30, let's say, you, you probably only need 10 eggs to get okay. a 50 to get a 50% chance for a baby later on. This is just general figures. Um, and if you're age 30, there's a high chance you're going to get more than more eggs than that. If you're 40, you probably need about 40 eggs. You know, these are rough figures to get about a 50% chance of a baby. And at 40, for most women, you know, uh, an IVF cycle is going to get fewer than 10 eggs. You know, so you're looking at multiple cycles of expensive treatment to give you a, a modest chance, you know, unless you get really high egg numbers. So yeah, the younger you do, the better. Mm-hmm. It's definitely better than doing nothing. But I think I always say to every patient, you mustn't just rely, you know, you mustn't think, well, I'm going to do this now and I don't need to worry about a thing. Um, everything's guaranteed. You know, the, the best the best mentality of doing is, look, I'll do it because it is better than doing nothing. Hopefully you won't need them. And, and don't then to kind of rest on your laurels and think, oh, I've got nothing to worry about now. You know, if I don't meet the right person until I'm, you know, 42, I'll just get those eggs out and it's guarantees a pregnancy. So it never guarantees a pregnancy. Um, but if you've frozen eggs at 30, you've got a much higher chance of getting a baby from those eggs than if you then try to get pregnant at 40 with your 40-year-old eggs. So you've got, just got to go through us. And the first question I would often ask you, I saw somebody who is 38, you know, uh, wanting to freeze eggs is, you know, have you really thought about should I actually just be going ahead and getting pregnant now because that would be the best thing to do in terms of getting a baby. If that's what you really want, yeah. Yeah. And if someone is going, is hopefully of that younger <laughs> age and doing this as an insurance policy, what's the best way for them to prepare for egg freezing? Is there any dietary yeah. changes or um, lifestyle it, help? Um, look, like anything, you know, moderation or things, um, you know, if you're um, – Hopefully, you know, uh, have a uh, aim for a normal BMI in a normal age, um, moderation, all things. So you don't need to, you know, be living like a, an austere lifestyle. But, you know, I wouldn't be drinking, you know, loads of wine each day and everything. The occasional glass of wine is probably fine. Uh, one coffee a day is probably fine. Um, but probably the most important thing is to get your AMH, your egg reserve, tested first. Okay. So that's the first thing I'd always do for two reasons. First of all, it gives realistic expectations of if you were to do this, how many eggs you're likely to get. And it also tells your doctor what the best form of treatment is to get, you know, hopefully get a good egg number the first go. So the very first thing it would be to either your GP or a specialist to get your AMH measured. It costs, I think, about $90 to do it. There's no Medicare for it yet, but it would be the single most useful test you can do. And also, hopefully to want them to make sure that you are not prematurely running out of eggs as well. Mm. You don't want to learn too late that you've gone through early menopause, do you? No, no, it's pretty rare, but, it, you know, obviously working there, I do, I see a lot of things which are quite rare because, you know, you, you're seeing those patients who where these unfortunate things happen. Um, so generally we mean that's under 40, premature menopause. But it's, um, you, you, yeah, certainly if you think about egg freezing, get your AMH done. And is there any things that we totally shouldn't do, like I don't know, smoking or 
Yeah, look, um, so best avoid smoking if you can. We know smoking reduces both fertility and it reduces egg reserve too. So, you know, so long-term smokers, they'll have an, an average uh, lower egg reserve than somebody who's a non-smoker. And the pregnancy rates... How many cycles of treatment should someone go through before they start looking at maybe a different approach? And what would be the options for them for a different approach? Wow. <laughs> that's such a that, that's such a oh, such a difficult question to answer actually, because um, I don't know. And anybody who tells you they knows uh, is wrong because we, we don't know. We we get surprised all the time. I've you know, I've seen patients who've had 14 goes at you know, egg collections before they've seen me and you know, I've strongly recommended to, you know, they move to a different direction, then got pregnant with the next one. So that can happen. But look, as a general rule, for most people, most people, um, the chance of getting success is related to getting the right embryo back. So, you know, and, and that's a lot of that is dependent on history and age, particularly. So most of the time, it's a question of persisting to get that right embryo. Because we know a lot of embryos that look normal are not normal. And so most of the time, success or failure is, is determined by that. So in, within reason, the cumulative pregnancy rate increases the more you do it. Now, in terms of answering that question, though, you know, uh, as success rates um, have improved, you know, going back 15, 20 years ago, you know, we, we would often take 10 embryo transfers to get um, a, a pregnancy because uh, we often do day two or day three transfers all the time. The average pregnancy rate is a bit lower. Most of the time now we're doing blastocyst transfer, which is day five, where, where they expect the pregnancy rates to be higher. So nowadays, if we, you know, if we do more than three good-looking blastocysts back and it hasn't worked out, we start to get a concern there could be something else going on. Even in that group, though, if you look at the evidence, most of those uh, women who've had more than three good embryos back and it, and it hasn't worked, they will often get pregnant anyway afterwards. So it's often just a, a question of persistence. So it's really hard to give like a generic answer that, you know, three, four, five, whatever it is. Normally after three good blasts back and, and no pregnancy, we do some extra tests. But often it's just persistence. Now in terms of changing what we're doing, again, all these things you have to take into account age, past history, you know, not everyone's the same. You know, if somebody is 43 and has had three goes and not got an embryo at all, then obviously that's a different situation. And, and that situation might be it's time to start looking at donor eggs. Whereas if somebody's younger and we're getting lots of eggs and embryos and they haven't worked, that's a very different situation. So you've got to individualise it to the person. Um, in terms of changing what we do, um, every IVF conference you go to, there'll be whole sections on, you know, what's the best form of, you know, IVF cycle to do for, 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 for women where it hasn't worked. And there's often no consensus. And the reality is probably keep doing the same thing is as, is, is as good as anything. But, you know, human nature will never tolerate that. You know, it's like keeping doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. Um, you know, I think the, the old definition of insanity. So we honestly don't know what the answer is. You know, often we will try different kinds of stimulation protocols, you know, different drugs. So there's, that's the first thing we look at. Do we change anything in the stimulation part? And then the other big question is, um, everyone will have heard of these adjuvant therapies, you know, for patients where they've had lots of treatment and it hasn't worked. Often we'll start to try 
other things adding on to the cycle, many, most of which have got no proof, but we'll often try them out of desperation really just to see whether we can change the outcome. Now, a lot of those um, two have, have really haven't got much evidence. I think we'll be talking about this a little bit later on, but there's a whole lot of things that have been looked at, steroids, you, you name it. Not Really, there's no evidence for any of them that they make any difference, but often we will try them more out of, I think, to give renewed hope, you know, to something, you know, hopefully we're going to get a different outcome. But the answer to your question, as you'll see from my, you know, my, my sort of answer all over the place is we don't really know. We know, you know, we know that persistence often does work out if you're getting embryos. Yeah. And how often do you look at doing genetic testing and what's involved in that? So time and a place for that. So, again, there's different uh, IVF units have different beliefs and different countries too. There was, I was reading a, a review just come out. So I I think, so, so with the genetic testing, there's different kinds of genetic testing. That's the first thing to say. The We'll talk about one of them. So the commonest reason an embryo doesn't take is the embryo itself has got the wrong number of chromosomes. So an embryo should have 46 chromosomes in it. Sometimes they have 45, sometimes they have 47, which means they either don't implant or if they do, they lead to a miscarriage or they can lead to things like Down syndrome and extra chromosome 21. So there's different kinds of genetic testing, but there's one called PGTA, which stands for aneuploidy, where we basically check the embryo to see whether it has the right chromosomes number in it. And that's the commonest reason why an embryo does or doesn't take. So you think, well, why don't we do this for everybody? Because that's, you know, that sounds like magic. There's some downsides to it. One is that it's quite invasive. So it's expensive, but if you've, even if you forget about cost, but it's quite invasive. We have to biopsy the embryo. So we grow the embryo to the blastocyst stage, day five and onwards. We take cells away from the embryo. We then have to freeze the embryo. And then we, with very clever technology, with new, next generation sequencing, we can identify with pretty good accuracy whether that embryo which is frozen is normal or not. If it is normal, we can transfer that next month and it's got a higher chance of taking. So you think it would, you know, it would make sense to do this for everybody. The downside is that even when we do the testing, the pregnancy rate is only 50% per embryo. So it could be that the actual testing may reduce the chance of the embryo implanting. Um, the other thing too is we can't test every embryo, so you can only uh, you can only do this testing on embryos which look absolutely perfect. And we know uh, that there are a whole lot of embryos which don't look quite perfect, which lead to a perfectly normal pregnancy. So those get excluded from the testing. So this recent review actually showed that if you are doing the genetic testing for just for everybody for a first cycle, it actually reduces the cumulative pregnancy rate because you end up um, you, you end up sort of discarding some embryos which may have worked. Right. So that's the, that's why we don't do it for everybody. But I still think it does have a place. So the place I think it's really useful is I see quite some women um, who are in their 40s who do have actually a very good egg reserve. So even though they're 40, they do an IVF cycle and we get loads of eggs and embryos. Now, we know for them, most of them are going to be abnormal. Mm. So that's a good reason, I think, to do it because then let's say you get five embryos um, rather than going through five months of you know putting an embryo back each month and being disappointed, we can find out at that stage if they have five good embryos, we can test which ones have got any chance or not. So that's, I think, the best group to use it for are for women where we're getting lots of embryos. The other one is um, for women or couples where they've had a lot of treatment and it hasn't worked. 
at least to remove that as the cause, you know, with their next cycle, maybe to do the testing to at least to exclude the, the commonest cause before we do another embryo transfer. But it's generally not a great idea, I think, just for every patient for a first cycle. Yes. So you'd want to wait a couple of cycles before you reverted to that if you needed to. I mean, it's, it can be frustrating, like, you know, often for, for a patient where that's the case, and they think, well, you know, why the hell do we do that first time? But, you know, what they sometimes don't realise is that isn't necessarily, they wouldn't, that's not best for everybody first go. You know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, but, you know, the latest, I said, the latest paper um, come out says it's not the best thing to do for every, every patient first go. How common is it that you see women that have, no idea about their reproductive systems and their symptoms. Um, probably commoner than you think. <laughs> look, it's, look um, it's rare, but you know you'd expect. Uh, I'm sure, you probably expect anybody who's you know go off to a fertility uh, specialist to have you know some idea about sort of when they're ovulating. Have you? And most do, but you do occasionally you know get somebody. Um, more commonly, those you know for. Um, women in heterosexual relationship quite often the male partner will have absolutely no idea you know sometimes, sometimes the female partner will be more informed than me by the time she gets there with the amount of research and the male partner you know has been sort of dragged along at the last moment and you know knows nothing but look it, it's rare but you do get the occasional surprise is there anything women can do in that dreaded two-week wait after transfer before the pregnancy test that will actually make a difference to the success um, probably not, is my answer. I mean, obviously, avoid doing anything which is going to be hazardous or stupid. You know, I think moderation all things, you know, I wouldn't be, um, if you're not a triathlete already, I wouldn't be, you know, going to, you know, for your first triathlete day after the transfer or anything like that. Um, so just moderation in all things. There really isn't. Um, the thing, you know, often a good thing to do is to try and not change what you do. So the thing which worries me most sometimes is I'll see, uh, you know, a woman and she'll say, I'm, given everything up to focus on this i've given up my job i'm just going to focus completely on this and i don't think that's the right thing to do because you know it's such a tense time that as much distraction as you can have with other things in the two weeks is the best thing it won't change the outcome but just to reduce the awful stress and sort of waiting you know for that countdown the day of the day of the pregnancy test and as each day gets closer you know looking to see if there's any sign of bleeding and yeah but there's nothing we know of can really change the outcome I think there's a there's a lot of uh, old wives tales that people do. I, I think you probably keep McDonald's chips in business after transfer. <laughs> that pineapple. Do, do anything. Yeah, yeah, read that. Do anything which makes you happy, <laughs> within reason. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on immune protocols? Oh gosh, that is again. We're really going on the on the real thorny sort of controversial one. So, got some good questions from my audience. They do too much googling, I think. <laughs> Yeah, and look, it's one of the thorns in my side to a degree too, because one of, well, sure, talk about this. One of the commonest questions, and I, you can, as a specialist, you can almost feel the question coming on is, you know, should we be checking my natural killer cells? So, look, I'll give you, you know, as I've probably mentioned before, I've got a bit of a background in immunology. My PhD was in immunology. Look, there's a lot we do know and a lot we don't know. What we do know is pregnancy itself is one of the most amazing um, and complicated immune times there is. So, Pregnancy is the only time that any person really, the whole immune system changes. So for the first time in your life, you are, as a woman, you are tolerating something inside you which is immunologically not you. If you try to do this at any other side, like, you know, 
later on in life, if you just try to, with your child, trans, you know, uh, transplant kidneys between you without immunosuppression, they would just be rejected out of hand. So something really clever goes on in the uterus, which means that the, the, the baby, developing baby, which is not immunologically you, is somehow protected against the normal immune system. It's a complex thing and really clever. So we know it's a very special time, very different. Now, there's a whole lot we know and a whole lot we don't know. So one of the theories is that if um, if things aren't working, there have been lots of embryo transfers, for example, which haven't worked with lots of miscarriages, maybe there could be some immunological problem, which is causing this, that the immune system is not being suppressed the way it should be. Now, there's a, thousands of you know observations about this, and there's very little to help guide us. The question I get most asked, asked about are natural killer cells. Now, natural killer cells, in reality, they're actually in the uterus. They are a really important cell. So they are the most common white cell in the uterus. And they seem to have very little cytotoxicity, actually, in the uterus. They're probably actually important in implantation rather than being a killer. And if you... You know, um, if you do assays for them, doing an endometrial biopsy on different stages of the period uh, of the cycle, you get wildly different results. So sometimes you'll get people saying, "I measured, I had my, you know, natural killer cells measured, and they were high." It really doesn't, you know, I don't think there's one study which has shown that that actually has any significance in terms of outcome. So the jury really is out, you know, on that. And I guess the question is. Even if that was a problem, what do we do about it? And there really isn't much evidence to show that giving any extra things, steroids or whatever, makes any difference. So a whole lot of things have been looked at, intralipid, steroids, and they're pretty good studies showing that um, giving steroids in pregnancy doesn't change the outcome. So um, the simple answer is, yes, immunology is probably important. We know very little about it. It doesn't seem to be really any good evidence that natural killer cells are a problem in the uterus by measuring them in the uterus. And the conventional treatments we normally offer, like steroids, really at this stage haven't been shown to make any difference. Right. So it's, you know, it's a complicated. So I'm quite often asked, you know, shouldn't we be checking your natural killer cells? And look, that's the honest answer. There's probably not much point because if I check them and they come back as high, we don't know if it makes any difference. And what you do anyway. So sometimes we'll just, I'll empirically give a short course of steroids, which suppress the immune system. Mm -hmm. Even though that's not been shown to make any difference, that's not going to do any harm. Um, you know, it's not going to cause any long-term problems with steroids, which, you know, if you're taking them for long periods of time, can, can cause real issues. So we'll sometimes try a short course of steroids, but, you know, putting your hand to your heart, we don't know if it makes any difference or not. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on using a human growth hormone during IVF to improve egg quality? Okay, so again, um, <laughs> actually, I have to say, when I, when I got your list of questions before, I thought this is incredible. This is like, uh, you know, this is like some come from you know an IVF conference, you know, <laughs> touching upon all the controversy. So, growth hormone. Um, again, I'll be honest with you, I don't use it because I don't believe if there is any benefit for it, it, it really warrants the massive cost. So what do we know about it? So growth hormone, um, in the very early stages of egg development in the uterus, actually before you're doing the IVF cycle, growth hormone, we think, can have some effect on development at the early stage of egg development. Um, it acts not through growth hormone. It acts through a, uh, a thing called insulin-like growth factor, which is produced by the liver. 
cutting to the chase on this, if you look at all the studies, if you go to the Cochrane database, which is um, quite a useful source where they try and look at all the studies of, that have been done and come to make some sense of it, their conclusion was um, there's no evidence that it increases the live birth rate. So that's their looking at all the different studies. That's the evidence at the moment. Really expensive to use. So, you know, if you, add, if you added that into the mix, it'd almost be as cheap to just do another IVF cycle, you know, the amount of costs. And there really, at the moment, isn't any evidence to prove it makes any, any difference. Mm. From a theoretical point of view, too, if you were really believed it was working, like most of the protocols have the growth hormone being, being taken in the, um, the actual IVF stimulation cycle. Now, if you believe that it has a role, you probably should be taking it for weeks and weeks in advance because it works via the liver to make insulin-like growth factor, and that's acting at the early stage of egg development, which actually occur before that last two weeks when you're doing the IVF cycle. So theoretically, you know, you should be using it for weeks in advance, and that would be really expensive. So I don't use it. Is there anything you have seen or read about that will help with egg quality that ideally people would be doing before they started the IVF cycle? Um, honestly, no. Um, if there was, and I you know, knew about it and believed it, I would be doing the Zoom from, I don't know, the Caribbean somewhere, kicking <laughs> <laughs> back, you know, knocking back a Peter Clarda because it really is the holy grail. Like if there really, you know, so many things have been looked at really hard to do the trial so we know you know the bottom line is most of the time with egg quality is whether that egg has the right number of chromosomes in it. so it's a genetic thing so many things have been looked at you know obviously a whole lot of you know uh, supplements coenzyme coenzyme q10 mm, i've heard that one a lot you, you know uh, melatonin uh, dhea actually dhea we think uh, if it has any effects probably not egg quality more sort of maybe egg number for low responders so many things have been looked at you know acupuncture alternative medicine at the moment we don't have anything that we know makes any know for sure makes any difference yeah. i guess as so, long as they're not going to harm you if it helps you yeah. mentally to think you're doing something then that's sometimes some benefit isn't it it is so if you're not doing anything harmful and you feel better doing it same things like you know acupuncture um or you know seeing your natural whatever if you feel better for it it's got to be good you know and as long as it's not anything harmful if you are taking um, some chinese medic you know medication just be um obviously discuss that with your practitioner particularly if you're going on to do ivf afterwards there's no interactions that they know of um but at this stage no no proof for any of it um but if it's not harmful and you feel better taking it you know obviously we wouldn't discourage you I guess the other part of all of this that I didn't write down as a question is um, what is the situation currently in Victoria with donor sperm? Tough. So Victoria per se is, uh, we have an extra regulatory body here called VARTA, uh, which, you know, keeps a close eye on and practice, you know, at every level. Um, so it is actually more difficult to import sperm from either interstate or overseas into Victoria. It is you know, uh, more to fuel. So I think most most IVF units are struggling to get as many donors that, as they wish for. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know some IVF units actually have a waiting list. So, you you know, if you decide you want to use donor sperm, you've got a waiting list. And then, you know, after when your name comes to the top of that, you'll be shown which donors has become available. So it's pretty tight. You know, there's definitely more, there is definitely more um, demand than supply. 
And with anonymous donor sperm particularly, um, we're under enormous pressure to make it as safe as possible. So um, for every donor, we, you know, the, the, the extremes of testing we go to would be far beyond any sexual partner you'd, you'd ever have. We'd be now test, genetically testing every every donor too to exclude any sort of recessive genes. So in simple terms, is there is more demand than supply. We can only use each donor for a maximum of 10 families. So even if the donor says, I'd never want to have children myself, we assume that that's going to be the case. So that means you know, nine other families. So once we get a new donor, and it takes a long time to get that point, we have to do all the psychological screening, all the blood testing, quarantine the sperm, doing it all again. So it's a lot for the donors to go through, you know, and we can't offer any financial incentive. That's why it's so tough. Um, at the moment, we, you know, where I work, we have a few, um, but it, it is far from a, you know, open slather in terms of, you know, I want this person with these characteristics. It's, you know, uh, we don't have that degree of choice available. We The clinic I'm associated with, with there is a thing called the Adam um, app, which I'm not sure you're familiar with. Um, but if anybody looks at that, what, and they're in Victoria, I would strongly encourage them to look at the Victorian donors because we cannot always often cannot bring donors into state. Is there any overseas donors coming into Victoria now? Um, not for us. And I think not that I know of at the moment. I know some clinics have tried to. Um, we're, you know, we're putting in submissions to VARTA to look look at it. So we're looking very closely just so we can satisfy all the uh, requirements in terms of counselling overseas and everything and, you know, not offering financial sort of encouragement. So we're actively working on it at this stage. At this stage, it isn't happening, but we're hopeful in the not-too-distant future it will. Yeah. It'll expand the pool a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Are you seeing it start to pick up now that more donors are starting to come forward and it's just the case of the process they have to go through? So maybe in a year's time it will be a better situation or...? Yeah, and I'm thinking too, obviously, the pandemic made things a lot harder too. So during that time when you know everyone was restricted in their travels, you know, it made it even more difficult, you know, to get donors. So I'm hopeful um, that we'll see more donors come through. Like we're trying to run a bit of a, you know, sort of fun sort of advertising campaign just to try and, you know, get it out there that, there, you know, that there are so many people who, who need, you know, donor sperm and not enough people donated. Are you seeing an increase in people using known donors through your clinic? Um, I don't think I, I don't think I'm seeing an increase. Like I see, I probably see more anonymous than, than known. Mm-hmm. I've had a few patients who've used a known donor, which when it goes well is fantastic, um, but it can have its downside as well. So no, I'm not seeing that increasing. Um, it, you know, there are extra things to think about there. I probably the patients I see, I'd say probably fewer than. You know, less than ten percent will be using known donor. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to be go through things in very close detail, make sure that you know you've got the right donor, that everything's you know clear cuts. You know, there's obviously legal things to think about, safety issues too, quarantining sperm. You know, like we still have to quarantine, um, even if it's a known donor, we still have to quarantine. Um, so you know, it can take a bit a bit longer to do all that. Um, but the main thing is just to make sure there's a real watertight agreement that expectations don't change later on. Mm. It's a big thing to people to navigate, isn't it? It is, yeah. 
there's anything from your perspective that you want my audience to know and anyone that's just starting out on this journey, what you'd love for them to, to know from their fertility specialist? I think the big thing for me is um, seek advice early. <laughs> so if you're thinking about this, you know, get advice early and get an assessment of your own fertility and don't leave it too late. Don't wait till you're 40, you know, uh, because I, a lot of the patients, you know, half my patients will be 40 mm. and sadly work for all of them. Um, it doesn't work for everybody who's 30 either, but obviously if you're in that 40 age range, there is a much higher chance things are not going to work out. So the biggest thing I can say is, look, if you're thinking about it, whether it's egg freezing, whether it's donor sperm, whatever it is, get advice early, see someone early, because even if you decide that day you're going to go ahead, particularly using donor sperm, there's a bit of a delay with counselling, finding the donor, you know, time can drag on, and don't wait till it's too late. So just think about it early and, and get help early or at least advice early so you can get a fair assessment of your egg reserve and make sure that you, you're not going to leave it till it's too late. Well, thank you so much for your time today, David. I've certainly learned a lot of new things as well along the way, and I hope that this is really useful for anyone listening. Well, no, thank you. It's great to catch up and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully it has been useful. And if any of your listeners, you know, have any specific questions following that, you know, I'd be happy to, if you email me, I'm happy to, you know, sort of uh, answer those. Great. Thank you so much, David. I'm Alicia and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like, a review or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.